0: Welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. This edition was produced specially for Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience 2020. Sharecropper to shareholder. This short yet powerful phrase holds great significance for me and my family. It's a story of hope, inspiration, empowerment, opportunity, and ownership. You see, today's theme of no limits speaks directly to what I'm going to share with you today. It's about not placing limits on ourselves, our families, but most importantly, one of our most precious resources, our children. You see, my journey has taken me from the West Garfield Park neighborhood here in Chicago to the Latin School where I graduated in 1996 and now serve on the board, to Tulane where I studied engineering, to Procter & Gamble for my first job, to New York to get my MBA at Columbia Business School, and now back to Chicago where I work as a private equity investor at a firm that manages over a billion dollars. Now, that's not exactly where my story started. It goes back before the west side. But there's no data that you could have viewed that would have predicted that I'd be standing here today. Least of all, wearing this fancy blue suit and this little red circle. (laughs) This is a sharecropping family from the 1800s. For those unfamiliar with the term sharecropper, these were families that picked cotton in fields on behalf of landowners and were provided meager wages and a place to live. It was the next iteration of slavery in our country. It evokes feelings of fear, misery, hopelessness. These are two obituaries, no need to start crying. This is Dave Barnard, born in 1885. And Kathleen Shorter Barnard, born in 1910, 1885, just 20 years after the end of the Civil War and the supposed end of slavery. They also happened to be my great grandparents. You see, they were sharecroppers in Mississippi in a small town called Ruleville. They had eight children and number four sitting with us in this room today. Her name is Ruby Riley, my grandmother, a.k.a. Granny. I post online about Granny all the time. So she comes out and I bring her to these events and everybody runs up to her and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm the one speaking today. (laughs) You see, Granny picked cotton in those fields as a young child with her siblings and her cousins so that their family could have a place to live. And like millions of African Americans during the 1950s as she grew up, they wanted to come north in search of better opportunity. And they fled the South moved north as part of the Great Migration, and they settled in Chicago in the North Lawndale neighborhood before ultimately buying a home in Austin. The picture you see here is my granny, her husband, my late grandfather. I call him Papa. His name is Carrie Riley. And the three kids are my mother, my aunt, and my uncle. It's my mother you see highlighted there and Granny was focused on providing food, shelter, and clothing for her kids. She wanted to protect them. You see, she barely got high school education, but through all of that hard work, her three children did finish high school. My mom went on to marry my father, whom she met at Lindblom, and they went on to have three children. I'm the oldest. I have a younger sister, Quinessa, and my baby sister, Adrian. She's 30, but I still call her my baby sister. And so my mom, like the focus that her mother had before her, also focused on food, shelter, and clothing. We had limited economic resources in the household. She worked two jobs for as long as I could remember. But that didn't stop her. She didn't allow the neighborhood, the crime, the poverty, the lack of resources to stop her from focusing on something that perhaps granny wasn't quite prepared to push, and that's education. And so my mom, given those limited resources, was still able to put three children through college. Me from Tulane, both of my younger sisters from the University of Illinois. I then went on to Columbia, as I said earlier, to get my MBA. Now, my middle sister had the first child of the family, my little niece Cadence that you see there. But before that, Something unfortunate happened in my life. I lost my mother, granny's daughter. February 19, 2006. That was a Sunday. My sister called me that Thursday and said, "Rendell, you need to come home. I said, is this really the time? See, mom had been sick for a while, and I couldn't afford to fly home every single time she went to the hospital. My sister said, yep, this is the time you need to come home. Wasn't able to get home that Friday, flew home that Saturday. My mother passed on that Sunday. About a year later, my sister learns that she's pregnant. Take one guess what the due date was. February 19, 2006. Didn't happen that way because Cadence is a little stubborn. <laughs> and she was born February 21st of 2008. As I thought about my experiences over all those years, college, throughout high school, back to Chicago where I was now working, I thought about how could I take the next step to move my family forward? And I said, I was going to pour everything into this young girl. See, I don't have any kids right now, so she gets spoiled at this time. But I became the uncle that was going to buy her more functional gifts and not just toys. Didn't always make me the most popular uncle, but she'll be okay. I bought her books to read, a globe so she could think about traveling the world. I started a college savings plan since birth so she wouldn't have to face some of the financial challenges that I had in college. And the most profound moment came about two years ago. I decided to buy Cadence shares in Nike, Apple, and Disney. And to explain to her what that meant, I walked her into each store just down the street here in Chicago, in Michigan. Nike Town, Apple Store, Disney Store. At the time, they were right next to each other. And I said, Cadence, you own this store now. Everything here is yours. (laughs) The toys, the dolls the basketballs, the laptops, the phones. Everything here is yours. This cashier works for you. (laughs) Cashier didn't find that as funny as I thought it was. (laughs) And then Cadence responds, cool Uncle Wren. Do I get free stuff now? I said, it doesn't quite work that way, Cadence. You're a shareholder, not a thief. Sometimes that's synonymous. But then she said, Uncle Ren, do I make money when people buy stuff? I said, what? She's eight years old at this point, guys. Do I make money when people buy stuff? I said, you kind of do. Let me explain that. A couple weeks later, I said, Cadence, how you doing? Have you looked up your stock, see how they're doing? Yep, I want some more. (laughs) Well, what do you want? More of what you already have, or do you want a different stock? Now I can talk to her about diversification. She said, I want Starbucks. I said, why? Eight year old wants Starbucks. She said, well, my mommy buys coffee from there all the time, and I saw that their stock was up today. Good enough for me. (laughs) I get Cadence some Starbucks stock a couple weeks later. She's in a Starbucks with her mother, my sister, and she grabs her mother by the arm and says, Mommy, you know I own this place a little bit. (laughs) Mommy. You know, I own this place a little bit. It was at that time that I had this very simple yet magnificent idea. I said, if I can get an eight-year-old to think about ownership from the simple act of giving her shares, then why can't I do that with 10 more kids, 100 more, 1,000 more? And keeping with the theme of no limits, that's exactly what I set out to do. I started an organization called One Stock, One Future, with the mission to turn one million underserved youth into public company shareholders. We do that by teaching basic classes about what it means to own stock and ownership, and the nonprofit donates shares to each kid. With the goal, as I mentioned earlier, to provide a sense of hope, inspiration, empowerment, and opportunity. The picture you see here is the first class that I conducted in July of 2016. We partnered with nonprofits, government agencies, schools, religious organizations, sports teams. We don't discriminate. We want to turn every child into a shareholder. Now, why do I want to do that? What's the impact? What's that going to do? I'm going to describe that using something I call ABC. Pretty straightforward, right? Attitudes. I want to change children's sense of self and belonging. I want them to better understand their place in this world and the value that they bring to it. I want to change behaviors at home, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, their ultimate relationship with money, how they think about jobs and entrepreneurship, and simply being better citizens. And last but certainly not least, I want to change the conversation that we have with children. We can talk to them now about economics money and wealth, but I can also talk about fairness, inclusion, social justice, and equity. Sharecropper to shareholder. It's a a long-term proposition to change attitudes and behaviors. It's not gonna happen overnight, and we can't solve all the issues overnight. But I believe I'm on to something. You see, in just 68 years and three generations, just within my family, we went from picking cotton in a field to picking stocks on the weekend. <laughs> Sharecropper to shareholder. Every one of you in this room has a cadence somewhere in your life. Could be your child, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, a friend's child, a godchild, or maybe even a random kid on the street that you can assist. Now, imagine a world where every child believes that they are an owner and that they belong. There's a lot more work to do, but I believe we can change the world and the future one stock at a time. Thank
1: you. just heard Rendell Solomon's TEDx talk from sharecropper to shareholder we are so happy to have him here today to talk more about his work and its implications for social justice inclusion and anti-racism I'm Kate Flanagan a 2012 graduate of the School of the Arts and a member of the CAA board Rendell Solomon is a 2005 alum of the Business School and a managing director at Muller and Monroe Asset Management As you've heard, Rendell is also the founder of One Stock, One Future, an initiative aimed at helping underserved youth take control of their financial destinies through stock ownership. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh,
0: Thank you for including me on this podcast. Happy to be sharing a bit and talking with the Columbia community. Uh, You mentioned your class of 2012, so uh, inadvertently thank you for making me feel even more old uh, (laughs) right now, but but that's okay. Congratulations. Uh, You're... (laughs) Your 10th anniversary or your 10th reunion is coming up in a couple of years here. Hopefully, by by that time, we'll be able to go back to campus.
1: I hope so as well. And where are you calling in from today, Rendell?
0: I am in Chicago, Illinois, my lovely hometown.
1: Thank you again for joining us. Um, So you started this project, One Stock, One Future, with one small portfolio for your niece, Cadence, and it's taken on an entire life of its own. Can you share with us some of the best and most challenging moments that have arisen from One Stock, One Future and where you're hoping to take the work next?
0: Uh, great question, Kate. Yes, it was a really exciting moment and time for me back in 2016 when I decided to start this portfolio uh, for my niece and, and put her on this on this stock journey. Uh, and just to add on to your description of the goal of the program in terms of young people controlling their financial destinies I really think of it in more, uh, in deeper terms, in terms of young people's self-efficacy. So yes, the idea of how to manage money is clearly a part of turning young people into shareholders so that you can have that dialogue about money. But what I also wanted to focus on, and as I mentioned in my TEDx, this idea that you can change attitudes and beliefs and start to have conversations with young people that you couldn't have before. And that speaks directly to one of the best moments that I've had in this journey. So at the very beginning, as I mentioned in my TEDx, and it's worth repeating right now, is when my niece says to her mother, Mommy, you know I own this place a little bit, when they walked into a Starbucks. So just seeing my niece Cadence at 8, 9, 10 years old begin to evolve her, wor- her way of thinking around ownership and companies and money and stock, that was powerful. Uh, another wonderful moment is even just around Chicago, I was, I'll run into some of the young people who were in that first class in a video that's actually floating around online. I worked with a nonprofit called Link Unlimited Scholars that works with young students providing scholarship and mentorship support throughout their years in high school. And 2020 actually represents the first graduating class. Uh, from that received shares from me. I didn't get a chance to do it with each subsequent class, but they were the first class that helped start One Stock, One Future. And and I look at them today and I see some of their accomplishments. I'm not in touch with all of them, but that's the exciting part as well. And I run into them and their parents and they still thank me today for putting them on that stock journey. And last but certainly not least, I'll tell the story of a young man uh, who's down, down in Florida at school, I believe he's at Florida State, And it's also a story around how to follow up and how to reach out to people for networking. So as a young man, after we did the One Stock, One Future workshop, he would reach out to me and want to have follow-up conversations. I'd miss an email or I'd be busy and didn't have a chance to get to him, but he was persistent and he was persistent in a way and followed up in a way that I believe even some adults can learn a lesson. Every two or three weeks, he'd send a polite email, no angst, no tone. He didn't feel frustrated that I wasn't getting back to him. He just kept following up. And then finally, I see an email and I say, you know what, let me email this young man back. But I said, you know, nope, I'm going to do one better. And I called him on the spot and we had an hour long conversation. So it's that type of relationship development, learning, understanding about the world, about money that I think are the best aspects of one stock. Uh, the most challenging aspects have been some of the follow-up. So if I have a, a group of young people with whom I do a workshop, there's 30, 40 kids in the class. As you can imagine, there's also a lot of adults who don't have this understanding around how to build a stock portfolio, how to open a brokerage account. And so over the years, as I'm thinking about where else can I take One Stock, One Future? How can I expand it? How can I deal with some of these challenges? That's probably one of the most significant areas is I send a certificate, a gift certificate for young people to open up a stock portfolio with their parent or guardian because they're always under 18. And you have to have a parent or guardian, a custodian on that account. The challenge is when I send that certificate, how do I ensure that it's redeemed for uh, some stock? And then how do I ensure that there's subsequent follow up on what that newfound ownership means? So hopefully that get set, uh, all aspects of that, of that question, the ups and the downs of trying to build an organization designed to turn 1 million youth into public company shareholders.
1: So there's just so much there, Rendell, that I want to unpack. But first of all, I think the biggest thing that's jumping out is this number of 1 million youth. Um, That's a huge goal. Uh, Where did that goal come from? And how are you doing a few years into this venture?
0: True story, Kate. It is an arbitrary number. A million sounded good. At the time, as I was thinking through the development of One Stock, One Future, the reason I picked such a a large, uh, had had such a large goal is that in the programs I've done in the past where I've worked with young people around financial education, I've done numerous programs and workshops and panels and discussions with young people about money. What I found is that it's often really They're much smaller classes, oftentimes. And the programs that I see related to young people and learning about money, in my humble opinion, many of them tend to go too far, too deep, too fast. I think some of them can be intimidating. They're jumping to more complicated aspects of money and finance in a way that as they go through it, the the youngest people who perhaps had more sophisticated training prior become the ones who stick with the programs. Now, I know there's some wonderful programs out there working with young people that have done a phenomenal job, but when you're trying to dive deep into these lessons, it's hard to do that with a wide group of students. So rather than focus on the depth of understanding, namely building out an entire curriculum that's supposed to go through a school year, and then you're really only able to do that with a few students, I said, why is there a challenge getting kids engaged in those programs? And I said, let me focus on top level and the breadth of the organization and say, you know what, let me get a million kids to dip their toe in the water and then other organizations can go from there to take them further out on that journey, uh, farther out on that journey into the, into the ocean of understanding not just money. But again, going back to those attitudes, beliefs around uh, everything from consumerism to politics to how weather impacts a business to what's going on in their community. All, all of those areas can be discussed when thinking about stock ownership. So that became my focus, less so on financial, financial curriculum, but more so on dipping a toe in the water. So a million sounded like a nice round number, uh, as I mentioned, around the challenges. Trying to grow that and expand that while also working full time has been one of the, one of the biggest challenges. And so we've, there've been several, uh, hundred students at this point, so far from a million. What I can say, and I haven't been able to track, and this would be an interesting data point is when I talk about turning a million youth into shareholders, it doesn't have to be just me. It doesn't have to be through one stock, one future. If you're a parent listening to this podcast, if you're an aunt or an uncle listening to this podcast, if you're a big brother, big sister listening to this podcast and you decide to gift certificates for shares of stock for a young person in your life under the age of 18, that helps me accomplish the goal as well. And so that's something I'm going to look to in the future is even if someone's not able to do the workshop with me where I'm delivering content and talking about stock ownership in the way that I know how. If someone were to reach out to me and say, hey, Randall, I just want you to know, uh, I heard you at the Columbia Alumni Leadership Experience, and I decided based on listening to you that I was going to gift all of my grandchildren uh, gifts of stock. That counts towards that million.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like, Rendell, what you're doing is is shaping a new identity, right, and then putting something in place that, as you're saying, the community can come in and affect that change, that it is a communal uh, effort and uh, and really, you know, that and that does create a ripple effect. Now, can you please take us through um, how One Stock, One Future does that for a kid? So my understanding is that you partner with non, a nonprofit or an or organization, you teach the child how, the mo- how money works, and then that nonprofit donates shares to each of these kids to empower them while you're kind of giving them this broad scope of what and who they can become as shareholders um is that is that kind of how you're approaching this as an education
0: yeah that's that's really close okay what i what i've done so far and again it may evolve over uh, over time but yes i i partner with nonprofits, religious organizations sports teams uh, or any other group of young people and i try to do that i try to do that with a group of young people that are going to connect with each other uh, over time as opposed to me hosting an event at a location and then getting young people to sign up. What I found is that, that actually creates another barrier or hurdle for getting young people engaged and involved in some of these programs. They're already in school five days a week, they have homework, they have uh, many, because I'm focused a lot on underserved youth, uh, there are uh, challenges in their communities, challenges at home. So if I do a workshop on a Saturday or an evening, I'm now adding one more thing that that parent has to ensure that that child attends. One more, one more trip, One more, a couple more hours out of the day that that parent has to find. As, as relevant and as important as the content may be, there is still real life that's happening for the parents and the young people. Perhaps they work on Saturday and can't bring them to the, to the program if I were to start hosting them on my own. So the reason I came up with the model the way I do, I say, look, let me show up and just give me an hour and a half of a day you're already using. Maybe they're already in class. Maybe they're already part of an after-school program. Just make me one of the speakers for 90 minutes. That way, now we don't have to worry about getting the young people there. They're already gathered for that specific program. So then what I do is I, I, I go through sort of a five-part discussion around what is money, uh, what is saving versus investing? You know what is a what is a spending versus saving? What is a company, and then what is a stock? Because a lot of people will say, "Well, Rendell, you can't really talk about stocks if you're not talking about all the other aspects to build up to it." And to a certain extent, I think that that's true to simply explain what stock is. But they don't have to have a deep, intense understanding of money uh, to understand that they own a piece of something, just like I mentioned with Cadence. They know what brands are. They know what Apple is. They know what Nike is. So if I can now speak to them as an owner of that company, I believe that that opens up a door and a pathway to a much deeper conversation about any topic that they're going to experience in school. So during that partnership with that organization, I do the workshop. And afterwards, each of the parents is, is sent a gift certificate to open up an account on behalf uh, of that young person. So the funds that I've raised to date hasn't been a tremendous amount. Those are the funds that's used to donate to these, uh, to these young people.
1: Let's look at how that identity can morph to, by going back to your family history the, that you spoke about in your Ted talk from Share to shareholders. Mm-hmm. So this through line of ownership in your yep. personal story and in your work with One Stock, One Future is really powerful and you know, you're, you talk about how your great parents were living on land that they couldn't call their own. They were farming crops that belonged to someone else um, all the way now to, you know, from, from that was about the 1950s. Is that right?
0: Yes. The 1950s is when they moved to Chicago.
1: Right. So in, in three generations now, your your niece Cadence is, you know, owning, owning stock in Starbucks. And she's able to say to her mom when she walks in, she owns a part of this place. <laughs> so. What do you think that that feeling can do for a person, especially a kid? Especially a kid. You work with kids between ages eight and eighteen, who's still forming their understanding of their place in the world. How does that change their identity, and and how might they approach their education differently um, when they have that sense of ownership?
0: Uh, you you really just spoke to the dream and the vision that I had when I started this organization, um, as I as I thought about success factors, and I. First floated this idea. It was actually a capstone project for an organization called New Leaders Council. Um, this was my final project. Was to start this organization, and as I thought about success metrics, a lot of people thought I should be talking to financial advisors and talking about whether or not their portfolio appreciated in value. And I kept trying to explain, guys, it doesn't matter if this portfolio goes up or down in some time period of course we want it to go up because i want them to actually experience what it means to, to 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 generate generate wealth or start to try to generate wealth but that's not the goal of the program and so as i thought about success metrics i realized that it was much more psychological and and so one of the first meetings that i had was was with a clinical psychologist Because that is what I was getting at in terms of that self-efficacy. The challenge around those attitudes that you mentioned, Kate, as it relates to whether or not this program is successful and what it can do for a young person, it takes time. And unfortunately, I've not had the resources or the capacity, um, and, and there hasn't been enough time to go by and have built enough of a data set to really get at that. I, of course, have the anecdotal evidence of some of the young people who have, you know, gone on to college who have, who have reached out to let me know that they were inspired by the conversation we had and the fact that they're now shareholders. But on a broad scale and you asked prior, where do I want to take the organization? That is one of the uh, measurement pieces that I, over the next five years, I'd really like to get to. Because if we're, if we're really going to understand how it influences a young person we're going to need time and data points the day they walk out of that class i don't necessarily expect things to change uh, immediately and these young people have faced uh, many of them tremendous challenges community um, hunger challenges at home educational experiences and so I, i don't profess that this newfound stock ownership is going to immediately turn those things around it's my hope that over time that it does become a ripple effect and begins to have an impact not only on them as an individual, but on their families and their communities more broadly.
1: Rendell, in your own experience, becoming someone who is without limits, someone who is a doer, <laughs> were there were there times, people, places, even within your education, maybe even at Columbia, where you just remember someone modeling what that looked like, modeling what limitlessness was, modeling how to maybe um, move past your own sense of, oh, well, this is the expectations, this is what the world is, uh, into what you're doing now and helping so many other people do.
0: I have a couple of of examples I'll use. In in high school, um, I grew up low-income on the west side of Chicago. Out of 77 distinct neighborhoods, my neighborhood was number, I believe, 72, 73 on the list of the poorest neighborhoods in chicago and and with low income in a neighborhood comes unfortunately all of the additional side effects of unemployment crime uh, poor housing and everything in between so i'm the oldest of three uh three children to my late mother and father uh, ida solomon and johnny solomon and all three of us are college graduates and we're the first uh, generation of college graduates uh, in our family and that's a remarkable feat that you know, my parents and of course the work of my grandparents, you know, how they did it, I, I have no idea. Uh, if I could talk to them now as an adult and go back and say, how, you know, Mom, how, how did you do this? Because the resources just weren't there and there definitely would not have been this expectation that, that she'd be able to put three kids through college at that time. What I found along the way is a continued focus on excellence in education. And I do believe that that's critical. Um, I, I think education is important. Uh, do I believe you have to, have to go straight through school, from high school to college and everything in between? Absolutely not. Um, hopefully young people are afforded the opportunity to take some time to consider what they've experienced the first 18 years of their life. Uh, that model may not change overnight, but I'm hoping that over time we can get to a place where it's not necessarily an automatic go straight to college, because what happens there, especially as we're talking about money, you go straight through school, you graduate at 22, maybe you go to grad school, maybe you don't, but you've had no real experience. And now you get thrust out into the world to be an adult, have a job, manage money, save for retirement, buy a car, buy a home. And you're expected to know that automatically when there's not a single class that you take along the way formally as part of that uh, education. So I'm, I'm hoping that that evolves over time uh, as well. But as it relates to where I've been, I won't say push, but where it was made clear to me to think beyond whatever limitations are in front of me. Um, there was a high school, uh, uh, teacher algebra that I had my first year and she knew that despite my prior educational experiences that there was something that I had in me. There was something innate about my understanding of numbers, and she wanted to push me beyond that. And so she, using her own time, tutored me in Algebra One honors. And in doing so, that allowed me to enter the honors program my second year. But then she went a step further and recommended that I go to summer school to take geometry. Now I pushed back at first because growing up, summer school was correlated with being remedial. You only went to summer school if you failed a class or if you were struggling to understand something is the only reason you would do summer school. At least that was my understanding of it. So I never did summer school and didn't want to, but I accepted it here because it wasn't about being remedial. It was about how to advance further, how to do more in that short time period, those three months between my junior or sophomore year and junior year so that I could enter the calculus program, which turned out to be a wonderful benefit. I... Got a, a, a four, I believe, on the calculus uh, exam, AP exam. And that allowed me to place out of two courses of math uh, at Tulane where I studied engineering. So, so that woman, Ms. Flinner, was one example of thinking about no limits. And the other, I'd have to say, uh, aside from my mother, I mean, I've talked about my parents, of course, the, the first, uh, first mentors I've had. But I also want to talk about my uh, mentor, and it's the gentleman who currently runs the firm, uh, where I work. I uh, met him when I was 17, Andre Rice, graduating from the Latin School of Chicago. And uh, he's been a tremendous uh, resource, uh, advice, f- became more like a father figure, friend, advisor, financier at times. And I know that that's his mantra. He truly does not believe in in any limits. And he's going to push and, and tell young people to push beyond whatever limits are placed in front of you. So so working with him, being a mentee to him uh, throughout my life here, much more than half my life at this point, definitely gave me the additional insight, strength, courage and wisdom to think about no limits as 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 was the theme for the TEDx talk that I gave here in Chicago.
1: You know, it's it's so cool to then see, you know, that you've taken that and become an identity disruptor on so many levels and uh, we 're just going to go kind of into the the moment that we 're in right now rendell and, and i 've got to ask you a little bit about capitalism, which seems to be at the moment in need of the biggest PR overhaul ever you 've <laughs> devoted so much time and energy to understanding how capital can help solve challenges around equity and inclusion and you actually recently announced that you 're leaving private equity and that you 're inspired to do so by the current political moment from what's been going on with COVID and the pandemic to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, because you want to just now invest your energy to move more fully into the immediacy of what we're facing and the crises that we're facing. Um, Can you share more about what led you to take this step now and what you're hoping to accomplish as you move into this this new area?
0: Uh, I wish we had six hours to have this conversation. Okay, but I will try to be brief about sort of where I am at this stage of my life, my views about, about capitalism and what I think I can do in terms of addressing the racial inequities that, uh, that we see today that have persisted in, in our society for hundreds of years. Um, you're absolutely right in that you know, coronavirus, police killings, and many other challenges from access to capital, to unemployment, to health, to education, all these issues that face Black America have been weighing on me. They've been weighing on me because despite my perceived success, both obviously educationally, professionally, um, uh, financially, I don't see a drastic change in the outcomes and opportunities for African Americans. And I think I, I, I was raised, as I mentioned earlier, this idea of go to school, get a good education, get some good grades, get a good job, make some money and everything is going to be okay. I fundamentally no longer believe in that by itself. I fundamentally no longer believe that it's a simple equation of go to school, get good grades, get a job, make some money, everything will be okay because it's not okay, as we can see. And there are numerous people in this community who've, who've done that and it's still not okay. Um, so as I continued in my career, I've done okay for myself financially. I've tried to give back I do volunteerism. I started this nonprofit, then everything hits in 2020. And I say, what more can I do? And also, what else can I do to really try to affect this change? Because the discussions are always around money and capital, of course. And I recognize the importance of it to address these initiatives. But what happens is there's a donation to a nonprofit or corporation has a splashy announcement that they're going to put $20 Twenty million dollars here, or fifty million dollars there, or ten billion dollars over here. And the question I ask is: Are those contributions, or can they possibly make up, especially as it relates to blacks in America, can they ever make up for the four hundred years of extraction of value and denial of opportunity for that community and the people in that community? And to that, I give an emphatic: Absolutely not. They can. We can donate we can even start a few more businesses, we can have a few more entrepreneurs, we can send a few more kids to school. But unfortunately, the wealth gap that's been created from these centuries of compounding, and you know, I'm a business school alum, so I'll I'll, I'll talk about compounding a second, the idea that if you have money, you can make more money, which makes more money, which has been going on for a very small part of the population for so long, yet denied to other parts of the population. And in fact, I would argue that it's been even worse, it's been compounding in the wrong direction because it's debt on top of debt on top of debt without ever really having an op- a real opportunity to be in the game. And people use my success as an example of what's possible. And to them, I say, yes, it's possible for a black woman on the west side of Chicago making less than $40,000 a year at the peak of her career to get three kids through college with an alcoholic Husband in the household, crime all around her, unemployment all around her. Yeah, it's possible, um, but it's not probable. It's possible, but it's not probable. And I believe that people in underrepresented groups, and I'm particularly talking about African-Americans right now, have, for whatever reason, become somewhat complacent with what's possible. And I've decided that I want to do more than tell a young person what possibilities they have, because I don't think it does as much good to tell them what's possible if it's improbable that it's going to happen. If I truly believe it's improbable, what good is it telling them that it's possible? It's possible uh, I hit the lotto twice or I hit Powerball twice. It's possible, but we know the odds of it. It's improbable. And when you look at the statistics as it relates to blacks in this country across every sector every sphere every um, every data point it seems improbable for some of the positive things to happen in those communities and that is why i'm stepping away from from i'm not can't fully step away from capitalism because we live in it but if i had the time to go get a a phd and study this even more because i'm no economist nor a historian and i don't profess to know everything about capitalism but what i'm doing is i'm reacting to what I see happening in certain communities and the negative impacts of that structure and the idea that capitalism in and of itself breeds inequity by its very nature, it requires that there's a, a caste of people who are the laborers who create the wealth for those at the top. And blacks and other people of color tend to be at the bottom level of that labor caste. And so that is why I'm stepping away, taking some time to reflect, to read, to learn to try to better understand, stick to my convictions, and try to affect change that goes beyond saying, hey, everybody, everybody should go out and try to make absolutely as much money as as they can. Uh, Because one, I'm just not sure that that's feasible, and I don't believe that that leads to solutions without real systemic change.
1: So you've kind of been in in both worlds. You've been deeply into, you know, Well, let's start with the fact that you've been at, um, you spent a dozen years at one of the few private equity firms with African American leadership, Mm -hmm. and you've been a managing director. um, And you've spoken about the power of that experience. So, how do you feel like um, inclusive leadership needs to shift? And can you share a little bit more about what it's been like to be um, on the forefront of? of
0: that it's a uh, it's been a blessing and a tremendous challenge uh, to be at a firm as you've noted that is founded by run by led by an african-american who also happens to be my mentor has been one of the greatest experiences of my life Um, let me give you a quick statistic recent knight foundation study pointed out that out of 68 trillion dollars of capital and their assets that are being managed in the U.S. About 1.3% is managed by women and minority firms combined. I will say that again because it's worth repeating. Sixty-eight trillion dollars of capital with a T. And by the way, I can't comprehend what a trillion dollars looks like, Kate. I mean, I don't know if it, does it fill a four-bedroom home in singles? Does it fill a mansion? I can't comprehend a trillion dollars. I just know it's a lot. It's a thousand billion. (laughs) And I think about that paltry number of 1.3% being managed by women and minorities. And I think about where society is today. And when we're talking about racial inequity, gender inequities, it is highlighted in full force in that statistic alone. And so this 13 years has been living within that, that essentially says, yeah, there's this pie out here of opportunity for you. I mean, we talked about possibilities and probabilities. It's possible to be a woman and start a private equity firm. It's possible to be an African-American and start a private equity firm. But the statistics say that you have that there's only a 1.3 percent pool of capital to which you have access to. And that's all of the women, all of the blacks, all the Hispanics, all the Asian, all the LGBTQ are lumped into that tiny 1.3%. And so, quite frankly, it's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating that, that there's somehow this perceived lack of quality and experience amongst certain groups compared to other groups. And so that is, that, that is the more challenging side of where I've been in this industry. And I'm not giving up the fight for sure, but here's the, here's the problem. The problem is when you are inside of the industry, you too are beholden to the rules within that structure, which means it's tricky for me while being inside of it, having to play the game Ask for the money, seeking resources, and then blast it at the same time and try to have this very open and candid discussions about the challenges as it relates to African-Americans, Hispanic, Asian-Americans, women, and others in trying to participate in this industry. I am very outspoken about this. And so I've decided I'd rather be outspoken more so from the outside than on the inside. And I'm hoping that that number does rise over time. Uh, and it's going to take some really bold, radical uh, policy changes and action on behalf of the leaders of this industry to, uh, in particular, the allocators, those who, who control the flow of capital. It's gonna take some really bold actions to affect that change. But again, tremendous experience. I've met some awesome people. Uh, I've had a chance to you know, visit the the Kennedy compound. Um, you know, special thanks to Carrie Kennedy, RF, RFK's uh, daughter, who runs the RFK Human Rights organization. You know, had a chance to 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 have a one on one conversation with her to talk about these next steps, given all the amazing work that that they're doing. I've had a chance to meet titans in private equity, from from David Rubenstein to Robert Smith to Henry Kravis, who I was able to sit in his office. He chairs a nonprofit organization, and I met him at a one of their galas years ago. We struck a conversation, and he invited me to, um, to, to sit down with him in his office. So I've had a wonderful experience, met some amazing people, made friends, and these are connections that I hope to take with me as I move to this next phase of my journey. So it's been an amazing 12 years. I love Mueller and Monroe. Um, for those who understand private equity, there's something called Carried interest, which is part of the upside. If your portfolio does well, I still have some attachment to the firm So I'm wishing the firm and my mentor nothing but continued success when I depart and I will do everything I can To help them in that in that success because I'm, I'm personally indebted to him for life everything that he's done for me So it's been a tremendous 13 years and I'm excited and anxious and nervous about the next phase of my journey
1: you know, you're talking about these incredible relationships you've taken um, from being in this world and being on one in one side of it, essentially. And your life has been changed by relational investment. You were talking about those specific teachers who really invested in you um, and how that changed your identity. And, and you've gone ahead and you've built um, systems that disrupt people's identities through relational investment. Do you think that there are principles um, in this in this really human, really beautiful Um, experience you've found, the way that works to change things uh, around relational investment that might morph capitalism um, into something more sustainable, into something more equal. And if so, what do you think we can take? You know, we're in a time of throwing so much away and things are getting exploded and that's really important, we're in a new time. Um, But in this new thing that's coming out of um, this really important year, what are the things that you think we can keep? And what are the things that you hope change? And what does that change look like?
0: Wow, that is a, that is a deep and, and heavy question around you know, what changes, uh, what might happen. Uh, I, I think I think the first, the, the first step is when the aggrieved decide to stand up and say, I am hurting, I am in pain. There's something wrong. There's something that's not, doesn't seem to be fair about how I'm treated. I think that the first step is to listen, to empathize and to acknowledge. Listen, empathize and acknowledge. I I really think it starts there. I don't have a magical formula around legislation and policy or magic formula around the exact formula for capital and its deployment. But what I really see missing is an inability for people to listen, for people to acknowledge, and for folks to be empathetic. What's happening I see is there are groups saying, hey, you, I'm hurting. And the response is, no, you're not. Or, well, you may be hurting, but it's your fault. Once that becomes the dialogue, there's no solution that's going to come out of that because you have two individuals or organizations or entities or sides or whatever, not listening, not communicating, not being empathetic and not acknowledging an actual issue. And then each side just goes back to doing things the way that they were doing prior. So until we come to a place where there's a a, a real moment of, of listening, um, I don't think we're, I think it's going to be very difficult to get to a more formalized solution as it relates to to these challenges.
1: So Randall, here we are, we're listening to this um, and we're talking about this because it is uh, Columbia alumni, the Columbia alumni leaders experience and we are all part of the Columbia community here what can the Columbia community do to help build equitable access to capital and to kind of move in action on all of these aspects that you're talking to us about um, today.
0: Great. Another great question. Um, so for the Columbia community, I'd say this, I think part of part of this challenge is understanding the flow of capital. Now that doesn't mean you have to go get an MBA. That doesn't mean you have to become a financial professional. But what I'd like to share are a couple of a couple of things that anyone listening on this phone can do or listening to this call rather uh, do right now I do so many of these podcasts on, on the phone. I can't keep track. It's Zoom. It's phone. Uh, but wherever you're listening right now, here are a couple of, of key steps you can take. And it relates directly to the world where, where I've played for 13 years in private equity. I mentioned institutional investors in $68 trillion of capital. That capital comes from public pension plans, foundations, endowments, corporations, and other large investors. So everyone listening attended Columbia University. Columbia University has an endowment, a pool of assets that is being invested by money managers. It's being managed by money managers. So wherever you attended grad school, wherever your children have gone to school, wherever your friends have gone to school, something you can do is ask that institution or ask that individual to ask that institution, just email them or call them up and ask a question. And if you're not sure, I got two questions for you. You can ask how large is our endowment if you don't know how to find that on your own and then ask how much of that capital is being managed by women and minorities. So if you care about this issue of inequity, if it's something that resonates with you, if you truly believe and understand that more equitable access will lead to the betterment of society for all, then ask those institutions that question and then listen to the numbers. And sadly, as you heard earlier, when I mentioned that 1.3% of money is managed by women and minorities, what you're going to hear is are very small numbers from these organizations. And that's the listening, empathy, and acknowledgement part. It's not about telling the solution, right? You could just say, you need to absolutely invest more money with women and minorities. You need to invest more money with African Americans. But rather than dictate that, let's start with the question and have the dialogue. And unfortunately, many of these institutions don't like to disclose that information. And I guarantee you, given the level of sophistication on pretty much any university campus, there's engineers and doctors on all these campuses. There's research taking place. There's cures for diseases that are taking place. There are commercial inventions and products happening on these campuses all over the U.S., You mean to tell me that you can't figure out the number of managers in your portfolio that are African-American or that are Hispanic or that are women? I wanna applaud my alma mater, Columbia. They just hired Kim Liu, African-American Asian woman as the new CIO for the endowment. That is the kind of leadership that we need. I'm gonna quote a phrase that I heard the former New York City Uh, CIO for the pension fund say and he talked about the leadership in the investment industry as a whole He said it's pale male and stale And When that happens when everyone in the room looks the same when it's when it's all white men leading organizations Then in this white patriarchal Society capitalist society that we live in it's no surprise then that the majority of assets are being managed by that group. Does that mean that that entire group is not good investors? Of course not. It just means that there's also some really good investors in other groups as well who should have an equitable shot at an opportunity to manage that capital. And unfortunately that doesn't happen. But when you get new leadership in place at the organization, when that leadership can then talk to the consultants who advise the system and say we absolutely must have diversity in our asset managers until that becomes a mandate until we require transparency and information i believe we'll continue to have these challenges so i encourage everyone if you're even if it's out of curiosity you don't even have to be, you don't have to become fully engaged in the fight but if you just ask that question of your universities, your graduate, the graduate programs that you've been a part of, ask them how much capital is being managed by diverse and women-led firms. And just listen to the data and the data will show you that it's a really small number. And then the question becomes why and what can we do about it? It's uh,
1: such an important um, encouragement to to give all of us to go ahead and have those discussions, to start with the step of having discussion. And, you know, also in your TED talk, you, you mentioned how, you know, we all have a, a cadence in our lives. We all have a, a God kid, maybe, or a son, a daughter, a grandchild. Um, what are some of the best ways that we can start talking to the children in our world about? Um, about finance and and maybe ways that we can socialize the discussion about finance from your experience.
0: Uh, I think the simplest thing to do for young people in your life is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, start them a brokerage account, start to build a stock portfolio. um, And these aren't, what I'm about to say next is not a recommendation for a specific stock, but it is a recommendation to use brands that they know, things that they might recognize. Because then what that does, you can engage in conversations and dialogue with them about everything happening around the house. I used to work for Procter & Gamble as an engineer. That was my first job. And so now, if you buy Tide detergent, if you buy Crest toothpaste, you can turn the morning exercise of brushing teeth to a discussion about money. You can talk about how much it cost to buy that tube of toothpaste. You can start to have questions about who made the toothpaste. How did it get in that tube? How did it end up at the store? Where did you buy it? So once you, once you turn a young person to an owner, hopefully that'll pique their interest. Then you can start to engage them in the dialogue about the household finances and then it hopefully it'll grow from there. That's, that's my thesis.
1: Rendell, I'm gonna ask you where we can join your mission and where we can follow you as you do take these next steps. Um, but, but before we go into that, I was wondering, You know, this is a complicated time and 2020 is a year that none of us will ever forget what are you seeing you know you're a visionary and you also are a doer um and a disruptor what are you seeing about this time that's giving you hope for the future and what's ahead
0: yeah it's 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 funny that's a that's a really good question there Uh, and if i can be brutally honest i am i tend to be very practical uh as it relates to vision i tend to like to jump when I can see what's in front of me, when I can see a conclusion. I'm an an engineer by degree, so I like process. I like knowing how to get from point A to B to C to D to E to F to G. And I have had to learn and push myself to move beyond that, how to take action when I can't absolutely see the very end. When I don't know what the final outcome will be, but I have conviction that I'm on the right path. And even recognizing that, or at least recognizing that if along the way I realize I need to move off that path, that I have the courage and fortitude to do so. And this current change in my life right now is a perfect example of that. I don't know exactly where things are headed. I don't know where it's going to go, but I do believe that it's going to require bold action. If I could ask the late great Congressman John Lewis one question is when he stepped out onto Evan Pettis Bridge, I would ask him what gave him the conviction and the courage and the confidence knowing what was in front of him in terms of what those police officers and others did to him. What, What gave him the strength to step out there? What gave him the belief and the hope that 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 action would somehow lead to a revolution as it relates to our civil rights in this country. And I am in no way, shape or form comparing myself to the late great John Lewis. There have been so many tremendous civil rights leaders and activists um, and economists and doctors and lawyers and teachers and, and, and civic workers um, and everyone's doing their part to take care of their families, their communities and society as a whole. But as I think about this step and this journey that I'm prepared to take, I say to myself, OK, I can't see the end. But can I see one step ahead? I used to play chess quite a bit when I was younger. And in fact, when I ran the uh, Columbia Business School Black Business Student Association Conference back in 2000. Uh, for 2005 school year, the year I graduated, the theme was beyond the next move. And I remember we had Maurice Ashley, uh, the first black grandmaster as the keynote speaker, which was super unique because typically the speakers had only been you know, financial services professionals and other executives at uh, in, in, in corporate America, whether consulting or, or other industries. So if, as I think about beyond the next move, what gives me hope about what I'm seeing now is that one and granny helped me see this even more. I said, granny, does this time feel different? You're 80 years old. You turned 80 years old on April 24th of 2020. When you were 12 years, 10 years old, you were picking cotton in a field in Mississippi and you've lived to have three children, six grandchildren, four great grandchildren. And yet, while there's has been some progress as it relates to African Americans in this country, there's still so far to go. So what do you see that's different right now granny what what what's different about this moment? She says she's never seen such a widespread awareness and attention around this issue. And if there's one thing I'm taking away from this moment kate it's it's that, and that's where it starts, as I said earlier. I'm still disappointed that there's still not as much listening or empathy or acknowledgement, but there's at least the dialogue and the conversation. And sometimes it's yelling, sometimes it's not, but it's happening. And there and there's a clear attention. And this is a moment where I think, I think it's going to be a pivotal moment for the next several years here to try to address some of the wrongs and atrocities that have been Part of this country's foundation since its founding and if we can correct that I believe we will all be in a much better place
1: thank you for sharing your thoughts and where can we join you um, on your mission and how can we follow you as you uh, do take these next steps
0: absolutely i am uh, i'm be I'm forty two years old on November fifth two thousand twenty I was born in nineteen seventy eight so I like to believe i'm Squarely in Gen X, but I have a little Millennial in me, I guess. Uh, so I'm I graduated college 2000, so I'm, I like to believe I'm am I'm a child of the of the digital age, and so that becomes one of the best ways to stay in touch. I'm very active on social media. I encourage everyone to follow uh, follow me on Instagram at Rendell underscore Solomon. Uh, you can also connect with me on on LinkedIn to discuss even more professional. Uh, professional matters since we we utilize these platforms for various reasons and i also encourage you to check out um, a new entity i'm starting it's a financial education platform called financial engagement so you can visit financialengagement.com and you'll be able to sign up for an email list there to stay abreast of what i'm doing uh, with that organization
1: really looking forward to seeing um where you go from here, Rendell. And thank you so much for being here, for your generosity and talking to us. And thank you so much to all of our listeners. Rendell, happy birthday. When this airs, it will have just been your birthday, I think the day uh, before. So happy birthday and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, all of what comes uh, in, the, in the future. Thank you again for joining us.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And thank you to Columbia for having me.
1: Uh, don't forget to download the Kale app, Crowd Compass Attendee Hub, and please make sure you don't miss anything from the Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience running through November 14th.